the world is going to be a better place when more men take it up the ass. I've been struggling lately. Uh, I've been struggling with how to be forward and direct with women and not appear creepy in this post me too era i am just more aware of how i come off because i've always been direct and i've always been forward but what's the line between flirting and harassment and is that line different for different people and how how do i move forward with confidence in a time where i'm just less confident and more afraid and as a result of all that, I'm less bold than I'm used to being. And it's been bumming me out, which is why I'm so glad that I was able to sit down with Charlie Glickman. Charlie is an author. He's a sex and relationship coach. He's a sex educator. And we sit down and we talk about his workshop, which is how to get freaky without being creepy. And we touch on consent and creating invitations for people to say yes rather than situations where they have to say no. And Charlie developed this template, this invitation template, which is so, so powerful. And, and, and it works because I've tried it in the last couple of weeks. We also talk about rejection and how handling rejection in whatever situation, whether it's a sexual situation or you're asking somebody for a date or for a meeting or whatever, how handling it well can pay off dividends in the future. And then we talk about this concept of compliance, which is new to me, but that I've experienced before, both on the receiving end and on the giving end, where compliance is essentially where some people will say yes when they really want to say no, but for whatever reason, they don't feel safe saying yes. And the framework that Charlie built, the invitation template, helps with reducing the the instances of compliance. So Charlie's going to walk us through that, but Charlie is also the co-author of The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure. So he wrote the book on prostate stimulation, prostate massage, and prostate pleasure. I would be doing you all a huge disservice if we didn't explore and do a mini deep dive on prostate pleasure as well because the goal of the love drive is, is to make sex and love less awkward. And the best way to do that is to talk about it. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Charlie, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Charlie Glickman, and I am a sex and relationship coach. I'm also a somatic sex educator based out of Seattle, Washington. And I'm one of the two authors of The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure, Erotic Exploration for Men and Their Partners. You wrote a blog post that says, How to Get Freaky Without Being Creepy. And this is something that I have been thinking about a lot lately, especially post-Me Too movement. I am attracted to women and I often want to I want to connect with them. And now I'm more scared to. I'm more scared to to be as bold as I have been in the past. And so you wrote this blog post that I love and I think a lot about being creepy and so I guess we could just start off by 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 sort of explaining like what 
what does creepy behavior look like nowadays? It's hard to answer that question because everyone you ask is going to have a different answer for what creepy is. I, I know this because when I teach my workshop, how to get freaky without being creepy, that's one of the questions that I ask the group. And we get a really wide range of responses. But so rather than focusing on what the behaviors are, I think it's more useful to focus on how they land, how the person receiving them feels. And and when we look at it through that lens, then creepy is a, a degree of closeness or intimacy or moving into somebody else's space that is uh, inappropriate for the situation or unwanted by that person. Now, this is where it starts getting really challenging because you you might approach two different people in the exact same way and one person might say that it was totally welcomed and totally fine, and the other person will say, oh, wow, that was creepy. And that's because they have different ideas about what they want. Creepy is defined by the experience of the person being approached. And that's what makes this so ambiguous, and this is why so many men in particular are worried about this right now. I know that this is a a scary time because we don't know what the rules are. Or we might not know what the rules are. I think this is also an opportunity for us, though, to build a little bit of empathy because the apprehension and anxiety that we, generally speaking, are starting to feel around being creepy or not is a small fraction of the kind of anxiety and fear that, for example, women experience just walking through city streets on a daily basis. So I think this is an opportunity for men to get a little bit of empathy and understanding of what is it like to be on guard and worried and apprehensive. I also want to be clear, I'm, I'm talking about men and women here because that's the the general trends that we see. I think we see some different patterns for some transgender people, but given that cisgender people are the ones who are you know, the majority folks and certainly the people who are driving the bus on all of this, you know, that's really who I'm talking about here. Cis men are the ones that are generally perpetrating, you know, creepy behavior, and cis women are the ones that are, for the most part, receiving it. And re just recently, I've I've seen several of my female friends on Facebook writing these posts about what they do to prevent from being catcalled on the street. Exactly. You know, like they'll they'll make resting bitch face, or they'll there's like a, a series of strategies, which is so sad. And I think this is something that most men are completely unaware of because we're not seeing it. It's not something that we are doing as a general rule. It's not something that happens in front of us. Uh, as a sex educator and coach, I talk with people all day long about their relationships or how they navigate sexual dynamics. I hear a lot of stories. So for the men out there, really trust me, most of the women who you know really are putting all of that time and effort into managing that. And the amount of concern or anxiety that we might feel is a small taste of that. Right. So basically the idea is they've been working on this stuff for a long time. Now it's time for us to do some work. Yeah, we have to step up.
it's time to be a little uncomfortable. Yeah, a little bit. Which is how I've been, I've been feeling it as discomfort only because I don't know what it is. And so I have to learn a new thing, which is a new way of talking and a new way of interacting with people. Well, I, I want to take that one step further because I think it's not just that boys and men don't get taught these things. I think that's a piece of it. But we are also taught to be creepy, to cross boundaries. You know, think about the way, the sort of the stereotypical way that men are taught to engage with women where, you know, you test boundaries and you push and you keep moving forward until she says stop. So, for example, it might be the hug that starts with your hands on her upper back, and then you trail your hands down to like her waist, and then the sides of her hips, and then down around onto her ass. And at each step of the way, what's happening there is testing to see if she's receptive, or to put it another way, testing to see if she's going to say no. Because we're not taught to simply be upfront about our desires, we get this sort of indirect, plausible deniability approach to things. And the problem with that is that if you keep moving forward until someone says no, even if you are 100% respectful of that boundary, you still cross the boundary. So the way that we're taught is a guarantee for boundary crossing. It it always reminds me of a dog who is well-meaning, doesn't want to be pushy, but is going to shove his nose in everybody's crotch until somebody says, oh, what a sweet dog, I'm going to pet you, even if 10 or a dozen people shove you away. And I think a much better approach, rather than moving forward into someone else's space, is to sit back and invite them to come join you. Which is a perfect segue into... I did that on purpose. You're really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? what is the solution if we don't want to be seen as creepy or friend-zoned? You know, it, it's, it's often those are the two things that, that we have available. Either we can be pushy and figure out where the boundaries are, or we can be seen as sort of pushovers or people that don't go and get what we want and then thus are put into the friend zone category, which I, I really dislike that term. Uh, but Me too. Yeah. For reasons. For so many reasons. We can talk about that later. But we're either seen as kind of uh, pushovers or not knowing what we want, or we're seen as being too pushy and, and, and like willing to cross boundaries to get what we want. So what's, what's the solution in a, in a landscape that seems to be constantly changing? So I have a template. I used to call it a formula, but it's really more of a template because it's adaptable to a, a lot of situations. Uh, I use this in sexual context. I use this if I'm asking somebody out. I use this if I'm trying to schedule a work meeting with somebody. There's two parts to it. The first part is an if statement, and it's about the other person. If you're available, if you're in the mood, if you're a yes to it, if you'd enjoy it, uh, some sort of if statement. And then the second half is a statement of desire. I would like to take you out for coffee. I'd really enjoy kissing you. I could really use some help moving a couch. So you put these things together and you get sentences like, If you're available, I'd love to take you out for coffee. If you have some time on Saturday, I could use your help moving some furniture. Uh, I'll use this in a work situation. If you have time next week, I'd really like to schedule that meeting to talk about this project we're doing. The reason why this works is because the second half of the statement is very bold. 
You're saying, I'd enjoy this. I'm into this. I would really like to, you know, fill in the blank. But it's situated within the context of if you would also enjoy this. Right. So if I say to someone, if you're into it, I'd love to go see a movie with you. That's a very bold statement. It's much more appealing than simply saying to somebody, would you like to go to a movie sometime? Uh, because that lacks some of that, that boldness. But it's also much more consent driven than simply saying, I'd like to go to a movie with you sometime. What I have found with this is that because you're situating the ask within the context of consent, people calm down. They don't get as anxious. Uh, and that means that they're a lot more likely to say yes. And if you're asking them about something that they're not really into, they're more likely to offer a counterproposal. Like, you know, I'm not really in the mood for a movie, but I'd totally be up for getting some coffee. Right. So part of why that is, is by making it easy for someone to say no, you're making it more likely that they'll say yes. That's the irony in all of this. When you create a safe space, it lets people feel safe mm -hmm. to actually really express what their desires are. Yeah. And I would much rather have someone tell me, no, I'm not available or no, I'm not interested in that, than to have them go on a date that they don't really want to be on. Uh, because now I'm wasting my time too. You know, if you're not interested in a date with me, I would rather know so I can go find somebody else who would be a yes. And by the way, with this template, it takes practice. So it's good to use it in lots of settings and situations to get used to it. If you're not sure how to frame it, you can always fall back on if you're a yes to it. If you're a yes to it, I'd like to go out dancing. I'd enjoyed meeting you for dinner, you know, whatever it is. If you're a yes to it, we just bought this book on prostate play and I'm kind of curious to try it out, right? Whatever the the thing is. Well, I was, yeah, one of the questions that I have for later is how do you bring up prostate play and you just, you just nailed it right there. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you're a yes to it works in, in most situations. Well, so I have two examples of, of this one where I did it well and one where I think I could have done it better. I, volunteer at some some place some places in Montreal and I met somebody through this volunteer opportunity that I was very smitten with and I thought was attractive and smart and charming and the list goes on and on and and I wanted to go out with her and so I sent her a message on Facebook and I said you know this might not be the appropriate medium for this and I'm sorry if this is stepping over any sort of like weird community guidelines within the organization but if you're available and single and interested I'd really love to go on a I'd, I'd love to go on a date with you which would either be like a, a walk in the park with my dog or some tea at a tea house. And that that was it. That was the message and she wrote back saying I am over the moon that you've sent me this message. I think it's so it's so bold and it's so honest and so so forward and unfortunately I'm in a relationship and I can't take you up on this but but thank you so much for the invitation. What a great way to have someone say no. Yeah. Right. I, and part of what I like about that response is that she was declining the invitation, but it wasn't rejecting you as a person. Right. I'm just not available for that. I mean, we actually, we have been going out 
in a, in a platonic capacity. Mm-hmm. So we, we have walked the dog and we've had, had, had tea and bike rides and it's just platonic. And, and I, I love the fact that, that she was able to say no. And also the fact that I was able to kind of craft a message that, that made it safe for her to express that she wasn't able to take me up on my offer. Well, and one of the powerful things in that is that, and, and this is something that many men don't realize, is that when it comes to male-female dating, romantic, sexual dynamics, women talk to each other about us far more than men talk to each other about the women in our lives. And the reason why this is really important to wrap your brain around, guys, is that, so to use this example, right, this particular woman wasn't available, but, you know, maybe she has a friend who is saying, oh, wow, I'm, I'm curious if you know anyone you want to hook me up with, or maybe she'll see you at a party and ask some ask her friend, hey, do you know about this guy? What do you think of him? And so by responding well to that, not only were you treating her respectfully and honoring her consent, but you were potentially laying the possibility for you know, a referral further down the line. Not only a referral, but, you know, people's relationship statuses change all the time. That's also true. And and I have found myself in situations where somebody wasn't available and then all of a sudden, turns out they are because something has happened. And then you're sort of like top of mind or you're, you know, at least somebody that they want to reach out to because they wanted to, but they couldn't at the time. Yeah. And that's why when somebody declines one of my invitations, I like to say something like, oh, thanks for letting me know. It's so that I'm appreciating them because saying no is a tricky thing in this culture, particularly for folks socialized as girls and women, but really for anybody. Mm. Yeah. I'm. So that was the one that went well. That was the one that went well. Yeah. I also want to talk about the rejection piece, but the, the, the other one actually went, went really well. I was at a wedding this past weekend on Bainbridge Island, which is why I find myself in this part of the country and uh, a phenomenal, beautiful island, by the way. Yes, uh, it it's like the Mar- it's like the Martha's Vineyard of uh, the West Coast. And I was chatting with with a woman, and we were flirting. We were, you know, s- uh, sitting around a fireside, and there was people mingling and chatting. And and after a while, I just i I wanted to kiss her. And we were sort of in a social situation where it wouldn't have been very appropriate to do it right then. And and then I started thinking, like, oh, what what can I do to like get her away so that I can ask her in private. And and instead, all I said was, we were talking about something that was not relevant to kissing. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears here for a second. I have a question to ask you. And she said, Oh yeah, what's that? And then I said, I said, what did I say? I said, I think I, I asked her if she would like to go and make out with me in the woods. So it wasn't an if then, but it was still a, you know, it was still a question of, would you like to do this thing? But how could I have made that question bolder and and fit into the uh, the invitation template. Well, you could say something like, "I think you are incredibly attractive, and if you are in the mood, I'd love to go over there in the woods where there's some privacy and make out with you." And how is that different than just like, "Would you like to make out with me?" So this is actually a. Uh, touching on the piece around compliance. Mm-hmm. Betty Martin, who is an amazing teacher here in Seattle, uh, has some wonderful videos on her website, bettymartin.org, where she talks about compliance and consent. And she taught me something really important about this, which is that human beings 
have, you know, there's not many things that we all have in common, but one of them is that we have all learned that there's times when we don't get to say no to touch. The reason why this is universal is because when we are infants and young children, our caretakers, our parents or older siblings, family members, whoever, there's times when they have to do things for our own well-being that we don't understand and we don't want because we're a year old and we're not capable of understanding it. And so what it teaches us is that there's times when we want to say no, but that it doesn't do any good. Now, of course, this message gets reinforced in lots of different ways and to different degrees, depending on gender and culture and race and ethnicity and, and all of these different pieces. But no matter who you are, you have learned in this really deep, fundamental way that there's times when you don't get to say no. So part of why this plays out in this situation, for example, is if I say to you, would you like to come do this thing? If you feel any difficulty around saying no, maybe it's because of who I am, maybe it's because of your stories about who I am, maybe it's because you had a boyfriend in the past who every time you said no, he would get really angry, and so you've learned to not say no. Maybe it's because you don't know how to say no confidently and politely. And so you say things like, mm, maybe later, right? maybe another time, which is a great way to set somebody's expectations up because you don't feel comfortable saying no. So the problem with would you like to do this is that if somebody has any difficulty using their no, you might not get the full answer. Um, and so that's why I like to say, you know, if you're into it, you know, I'd like to go do this thing because that makes it easier for them to say no. Uh, it's not inherently a bad thing to say, hey, would you like to do this? I use that question all the time with my partner, but that's because we have an established dynamic where we know each other really well. But with a stranger or somebody who I didn't know as well, I would definitely fall back on the if then. Uh, because it uh, it reduces the possibility of compliance. Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about compliance, and it's it's a it's like it's phenomenal that 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 this that it exists and that that it's sort of built in. Because I have had conversations uh, with people where they were saying yes, but it felt like they wanted to say no. Yeah. And and in that case, I did my best to sort of like dig under what was actually going on. Because I want people to be happy about whatever it is, the thing that we're doing. And I don't like the idea of people saying yes when they really want to say no. Yeah. I've been on both sides of this. I have both said yes when I wasn't a full yes. And I've been on the receiving side of somebody doing that. And, and no matter which side of it you're on, the experience just is not as good. Because if somebody says yes to me when they're not a full yes, you know, it means that they're not totally present. They're not fully there with me. They're waiting for it to be over. They're enduring or tolerating, which is never a recipe for good sex. Mm -mm. Heck, enduring and tolerating isn't a good recipe for enjoying a movie or family dinner. I think it's better to ask somebody, would you like to do this than not to ask at all? 
but it still creates the possibility for compliance. And one of the unfortunate things that happens is if I go into compliance and go along with what you want to do, I might be resenting you during it, which is not a happy thing, or I might feel violated by it and blame you for it, even though you had no idea that there was a boundary there because I didn't express it. This is one of the tricky things about boundaries. If I don't tell you what my boundary is and then you cross it, I'm likely to blame you for how I feel about it rather than saying, wow, I feel kind of crappy because I didn't speak up for myself. That's a much harder thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how how do we know what our boundaries are if we aren't used to exploring and voicing what the boundaries are? Because it can be really hard to say, this is what I want and this is what I don't want. And we also don't always know what our boundaries are until we cross them. In much the same way that if you are training for a marathon, you might not realize that a 15-mile run was too much until you do it and you wake up the next day and you can't move. So part of exploring our boundaries means learning the difference between the emotional equivalent between being a little bit sore and then it's like, okay, maybe I overdid it a little bit versus blowing past our boundaries and really hurting ourselves. I would love it if people could figure out what our boundaries were without crossing them, but nobody's figured out a way to do that yet. Yeah, it seems like one way to do it would be to, to, like you said, to explore the edges, which sometimes will involve perhaps crossing over, but not blowing right through it and like tearing your ACL. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes after those sorts of explorations, you wake up the next day with a little bit of a shame over, Mm. which is kind of like an emotional hangover. Mm -hmm. And you wake up and you feel tired and heartachy and just, you know, for some people it's irritable, for some people it's whiny, for some people it's wanting to hide from the world. But recognizing that that's the equivalent of being a little bit sore from a workout, it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody did anything wrong. So being able to discern, you know, did we go too far or maybe we just went far enough to realize we need to do a little less next time? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like in the, the context of a shame over exploring what happened and how we feel about it seems like a worthwhile exercise instead of just, you know, burying the shame over in a pile of ice cream and pizza and negative behaviors. It doesn't actually work anyway. Well, no, it's very short lived. Yeah. Well, and, and if you are experiencing a shame over going to the other person and saying something like, I'm having a shame over, or I'm having some feelings come up rather than saying you did this wrong. Because that blaming and shaming kind of behavior actually creates the opposite of what you want. It's very difficult to respond with empathy when somebody is yelling at you. So I'm not saying that you have to set your feelings aside and manage the other person's. What I'm suggesting is name what's going on for you. Like, oh yeah, we did this thing last night and now I'm feeling a little upset. And I just want to talk with you about that. Instead of you you did this thing and i'm and i'm and i'm pissed yeah yeah i mean i i have a hard time with with criticism and even when it's 
even when it's it's presented in the softest, gentlest way, I still I still the first thing that I feel is often is often defensiveness. Yeah, I mean it's just I'm conditioned that way, and I and I and I fight it, and I try to sit through it, and and it's still really hard to receive criticism, but also I think really really important when we're talking about you know boundary crossing. Yeah, and and that's part of why you know, if I come to you and I say, yeah, so we did this thing yesterday, and now I'm having some difficult feelings about it, right, then it opens up much more room for us to sit down and talk about it. You know, maybe that means we don't do that thing again, or maybe it means that we do it, but we know there might be some emotional tenderness afterwards, uh, but it's not framed as your fault. It's something we did together. Yeah, and I'm more, in, in the first example, I'm much more likely to say, oh my God, how let's talk about your experience. How, like, how, why do you feel this way? How can we make it better? You know, what's a solution for the next time moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I would be, because I, I like to work through problems with people. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to mention here, because I think it's relevant that when we're talking about male-female dynamics, because of the way that girls and women get trained, frequently get trained to, do all kinds of emotional labor and managing their male partner's feelings for them and doing all of that. I'm not talking about doing these things to manage his behavior because that's on him. But to use this example, you know, if I come to you and I say, hey, so this thing happened and I'm having feelings about it, you know, if you go into the shame reaction, it's not my job to manage that. Because that's the core of codependency. So there's a difference between emotional labor and non-defensive communication. Right. And and I think that's the I, I think the difference is that the, the codependency part is if I'm trying to manage how you feel. The non-defensive communication is being honest about what's going on for me. And then I let you have whatever feelings you're going to have, and I'm not trying to change them. Yeah, the the codependent piece is, I think, something that probably comes up pretty often, where, uh, uh, for the most part, a, a female partner will express some sort of dissatisfaction, and then the male partner will take that as criticism and will then start to feel anger about either having acted wrong or... Well, and then that will be the new thing that we're talking about. It's not the fact that there was this boundary that was crossed, but it was more now it's more about how I feel shame about the thing that you've told me about. And we sort of sideswiped the the original issue, yeah. And, and this is why I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's work around shame resilience because we need to be able to tolerate shame if we're going to be able to cope with somebody telling us, you know, maybe we did something wrong. I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I screwed up. Or even I didn't make a mistake. I didn't have all the information and I still feel bad for not having known any better. Yeah. And it's okay to feel bad. Yeah. And, you know, and to sit through it and to use effective mechanisms to deal with it that don't involve putting blame on the other person to get out of those feelings. Well, and since you mentioned putting blame on the other person, have you heard of uh, the drama triangle? No, Are you familiar with this? But I love it. It's this wonderful model for relationships. You can you can Google quite a few articles about it. Uh, but the drama triangle, right? Triangle has three points: a victim, rescuer, persecutor. 
when we feel like we are victims, whether we are objectively, for lack of a better word, victims or not, when we feel like we're victims, the other person is either our rescuer or our persecutor. So for example, if, if I feel like a victim and I come to you and say, hey, wow, you know, you did this thing and that really hurt me. There's only two possibilities that I'm allowing you to have. One is to be the rescuer by doing everything that I want you to do, or you become my enemy. You become my persecutor, right? If you don't do exactly what I want, then you're just as bad as all those other people. The thing about the drama triangle is that all three corners are actually disempowered, right? If I go into rescuing to try to manage your emotions, I'm disempowering myself. Right? If I believe your story about me being the persecutor, I'm disempowering myself. Right? So the drama triangle describes a lot of things that happen in relationships where we start believing that, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me. You know, that kind of pattern. And non-defensive communication is one of our tools for stepping off the triangle. And being able to say to someone something like, wow, you know, I see that you're really hurting. I'm so sorry that this is such a difficult time for you. If I had known that this was going to cause you pain, I wouldn't have done it. Rather than jumping to the place of, oh my God, how do I fix this? Is this a disaster? Do you hate me now? What's going on? Being able to stay in that grounded, centered place. Yeah, it sounds like step one is is to acknowledge yeah. the other person's feelings. Yeah, there's there's a wonderful, uh, art, a fairly long article, three faces of victim. It's the drama triangle. I think it's one of the best pieces on the topic, and I think that should probably find it on Google for you. I'm going to link all of this. Okay, thing. I'm pretty sure that's the name. <laughs> if you can't find it, I'll send you the link. Okay, sounds good. Some of you might have noticed that I took a break for a couple weeks. And it wasn't just like a full-on break, but it was a break to reevaluate what I'm doing over here at The Love Drive and also look at the process of building a podcast. What was awesome about the break is that I had some friends come and stay with me for six days. And we sort of like, we sat down and figured out what is The Love Drive and what is it about. And what we figured out is that The Love Drive is here to make sex and love less awkward. That's what I want to do. I want to make sex and love less awkward by talking about it, by inviting people to share with me how we can make it less awkward. One of the things that I found out about making sex and love less awkward is if I can learn how to ask for what I want, it makes things less awkward. Several years ago, I went on a date with this woman in San Francisco and we had dinner and it was really fun and playful and connected. And then I invited her back to my house for tea. And we had some tea and then we were sort of just sitting in the kitchen and it felt like we wanted, we both wanted more than what was happening, more than just like chatting over tea. And she looked at me and she said, do you want to watch a movie or something? Often in romantic settings, watching a movie is 
is what you say when you're scared of saying what you really want. Because then you can sit down on the couch next to each other and do this weird little dance where I'll put my hand on your thigh and you'll you'll like cuddle up next to me. And then eventually we will slowly over time, over the period of a movie, escalate the situation. And so instead of saying yes to a movie, I mustered up all of the courage that I had at the moment. And I looked at her and I said, I would much rather bring you to the bedroom and take your clothes off and see where that leads us. And she looked a little stunned, was quiet for a bit where I was just like freaking out completely. And then she said, are you always this bold? And I said, only when I know what I want. And then we went to the bedroom and we got naked. The point is that the more you learn how to ask for what you want, the better a chance you have of getting it. And it also makes things way less awkward. Like I didn't, we didn't have to go through the whole Netflix and chill escalation scenario. We could just shortcut straight to what was important. So all that to say that I wrote a guide called The Seven Habits of Highly Sexual People. And that is one of the seven habits is basically learning how to ask for what you want. So if you want the other six habits, go to thelovedrive.com. And right there above the fold, you can't miss it. It says, welcome to the love drive. We're making sex and love less awkward. And then right below that, do you want to be highly sexual? Put in your email address, click the little button, and I will send you the guide. There's seven habits of highly sexual people. It's free. It's an instant download. Put in your email address, click the little button, and I will email you the guide. My name is Sean Galanos, and you are listening to The Love Drive. Today, we're sitting down with Charlie Glickman. He's the co-author of The Guide to Prostate Pleasure. He's a sex and relationship coach. He's also a somatic sex educator. And we are talking about compliance, consent, and sexual empowerment. So you, we talked. We were talking about compliance, and uh, you also wrote this article about compliance, consent, and sexual empowerment. And you just mentioned empowerment, and I'm wondering if we could just touch base on uh, compliance, consent, con- consent, and sexual empowerment, like a quick definition of them, so we can kind of hop into this really interesting how, how these concepts fit together. Sure. Well, we've talked a little bit about compliance right. and, and what that looks like. Consent is really about making, but consent is the act of making a choice. And fundamentally, in my view, that's what empowerment is. Empowerment is making the choice regardless of what you choose. So two different people could choose two totally different things and both be empowered, or two people could choose the exact same thing and one person be coming from a place of empowerment and the other one coming from a place of compliance. Mm -hmm. I took a workshop a couple of months ago with Carrie French, who's a a consent educator here in Seattle. And uh, we did something really interesting in the workshop. And, And I found it interesting because I've done variations of this exercise before and just to notice how things have changed for me. But where we paired up with somebody and the first thing they did was ask us to do stuff like, you know, would you massage my feet? Would you comb my hair? Would you buy me dinner? And our job was to say no to every single request and just feel where that is in the body. And then we did the same exercise and our job was to say yes each time and feel where that was in the body. And what I noticed 
about this experience, uh, which was a little different from previous times that I've done it, is how subtle those sensations are, right? That felt sense of, yes, I want to do this, or no, I don't want to do this, can be very subtle. And that means that it's easy for us to override that, right? Like, oh, do you want to go to a movie? Well, not really, but it's not a big feeling, so I'll just say yes. Sure, why not? And override it. Or the other way around, right? Like, I might have difficulty tuning into my yes for whatever reason. I I find that especially common for folks growing up, girls and women growing up in communities or cultures where there's a lot of slut-shaming. It can be very difficult to tune into your yes because that's going to bring up all of those feelings. Um, and so learning to just notice where in your body you feel yes and no. And, and some people felt it in their chest or their belly or their upper back or their neck. I mean, people really vary widely in where we feel these things. So the question for each of you out there listening is where do you feel your yes and your no? Because I can't tell you. Everyone is different. Well, it can be really hard to tune into the body. Yeah. Because I don't think we're taught, I mean, we're not taught, how does this feel? Yeah. You know, like, I, I never took a class that, that effectively taught me how, how to feel things and what, what this feels like and what that feels like. And in, in this article that you wrote, there's an example on compliance where you describe a conversation that I have had many times with female partners that goes something like, do you like this or what do you like? And they'll say, I like everything. Yeah. Or how does this feel? It feels great. But that's always the same answer. It always feels great. And and we, we know that you can't really like everything and everything can't feel great all the time. And so h- how do we learn to feel things that might feel kind of nuanced? Yeah. Well, if I ask somebody, you know, does this feel good? And they say, oh, it all feels great. I will sometimes follow up with the question, what could I do to make it even more amazing for you? Or uh, somebody might not know. You know, this is where the practice of pleasure mapping might come in. And this is, this is a little difficult to do in new relationships, but it's not impossible. Pleasure mapping is, you know, you set aside an hour or half hour, however long you're going to want. One person is giving, the other one is receiving. And the person who's giving, you know, you could use your hands, you could do oral sex, you could do intercourse, you could do toys, whatever it is. But your job is to think of this as a wine tasting, right? If you go to a vineyard and you taste six wines and you only like one of them, that's still a win. Same thing with this, right? Go in knowing that your partner probably isn't going to like everything but you're collecting data. And so you try lots of different techniques. And after, you know, a little bit for each one, you ask your partner to rate it on a scale of one to 10. 10 is, oh my God, don't stop. I love you. You know, one is, this is boring. Let's put on Netflix. And remember that they're rating the technique, not your skill as a lover. And then, you know, you ask them to rate it if numbers are hard, because some people find that numbers get them into their heads and they're not feeling as much. You can do thumbs up, thumbs down. Or every time you do something that feels really good, you know, tap on the mattress so that they know. And then 
vary it. Like if you are doing, if you're giving somebody a blowjob and you are circling the head of their penis with your tongue and they say, ooh, that's a four, and then do it a little firmer or a little faster or a little slower or a little focused on one spot and see how that changes the numbers. You can start looking for patterns, like maybe somebody likes circles on their clitoris and on their G-spot, or maybe there are some differences, like they like very firm pressure on their clit, but very light on their G-spot, or the other way around. And you're just collecting all the info. So here's the part where this gets, uh, I think it gets really fun, which is that if you're with someone with a penis, right? If if you're doing something that they're enjoying, they can just open their eyes and look and see what hand motion you're doing or whatever. But when you're playing with somebody's vulva, that's a lot harder to see. So give them some words like, I'm using my index finger going back and forth on your clit, or I'm using my tongue to make circles on your perineum. And then the next time you ask them what would feel good, now they've got the words to tell you. Because a lot of the time when people say, oh, I don't know, or I like everything, it might be compliance, but it might be that they don't know how to put it into words. And the best that they might be able to say is, you know, do that thing you did that time. Right? You remember we were on vacation in that little bed and breakfast? Wouldn't it be nicer if they could say, I want you to go down on me while you have two fingers massaging my G-spot? Which is a popular technique. It's a popular technique. <laughs> or, you know, you if, if you're going to be a real geek about it, you could do what they do in CrossFit and give it a name. Like in CrossFit, you know, a workout has a name. Jackie. Jackie, right? You could just decide that you know, for you and your partner, Jackie means tongue circles on your clit and two fingers on the G-spot. Right. In a come hither motion. In a come hither motion, right? That's Jackie. That's the Jackie. I, is there a Jackie CrossFit workout? I don't know. There but, is. There's yeah. A, yeah, there's a Jackie. There's also a Jackie rock climb. There's, you know, so there should it's be a, a, a Jackie a a combo sex move. It, that's a thing. Yeah. Well, what's, what, what I love about this exercise is that it teaches us how to use our words. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes, some some people will say it all feels great because they just don't have the language available. Yeah. And it can be incredibly awkward to say things like, I really like it when you push on my perineum in a certain way because we're not used to doing it. And And I know that if I try a new skill... I'm not great at it at the beginning. Like if you put me on a tennis court, I'm terrible. It's embarrassing. The balls are going all over the place. I'm not a good tennis player. But eventually, if I keep playing tennis and I take some classes... It gets better. I'll get better. Yeah. And that's the same with communicating about sex while having sex. You really do get better at it after a while. Well, even just to say to your partner, that feels really good. Keep doing that. Right. That's actually more than a lot of people can say. Yeah. And the the irony in all of this is that many people, it's not universal, but many people report that getting that kind of feedback from their partner is the biggest turn on. Um, they did a study a few years ago looking at male-female patterns and particularly looking at the sounds that women make during sex and how women will often use their vocalizations to encourage their partner to try to get him more turned on so that he orgasms, you know, whatever it is. You know, nonverbal sounds are awesome, 
but they're much more powerful with the occasional, oh, right there, don't stop, a little firmer, you know, back off a little bit. I mean, I love getting direction. I mean, I just love it because I don't want to do anything that you're not going to like. And I want to do more of the stuff that you do like. I don't like, I don't try to make orgasm the goal of sex, but it sure is nice when it happens. And it does have a whole lot of side side effects, like, you know, beneficial side effects. And I'm not telepathic. Yeah. Although it is interesting how many men and you believe that we're supposed to sort of be like these telepathic sex experts and just know what somebody is going to like. I mean, you know, my partner and I have been together for 26 years. I still can't order takeout Chinese food without asking because, you know, I know what we ordered last time, but that might be different from what we want tonight. You really, guys in particular, we've got to get over this idea that somebody telling us about a a modification to make it feel better for them means that there's something wrong with us as lovers. In my view, being a good lover means saying to someone, hey, thanks for telling me. Yes, let's do that. Rather than saying, stop telling me what to do. I know what I'm doing. This is the G-spot technique that worked on my last three girlfriends. Yeah, this is Jackie. Don't you like Jackie? Everyone likes Jackie. That just doesn't work. Now now I feel like I need to write a, a... crossfit for sex kind of i mean i think i think that would be a very popular video course i'm gonna think about this okay if, we, if you need a co-producer okay. I, mean. I, I have to find out about the the copyright issues around yeah there's there's some issues there well we have to talk to reebok about it yeah also that <laughs> it'll be an affiliate there, there's this piece about enthusiastic consent which I, I love the idea of and then i think you think it's not quite nuanced enough is yeah, that is that it right? Is, it is. It is. It is not nuanced. I agree. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is not nuanced. And well, and the reason why I think enthusiastic consent is a great goal. Some of the time, for that matter, I would really like to be able to invite a friend out for dinner and have them be really enthusiastic about it and be really excited about it. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that there's reasons why somebody might not be. 100% enthusiastic, but still be a full yes. Uh, I might not really be in the mood for sex tonight, but you're going out of town for a week. So I'm going to try to rally, right? Because this is our last opportunity until you go out of town. Or maybe it's that you were really sweet yesterday and did all of these things that made me feel really good. And even though I'm kind of tired and I'd really just like to watch a movie, I'm going to you know, get myself worked up so that we can have sex, yeah. right? Or, or for that matter, I mean, I, I, I want to honor people's ability to be in a yes, even if it's not the 100% cheerleaders with pom-poms, yeah, rah, rah, let's do it. It gets a little tricky to, to discern that. Ultimately, for me, it's about trusting people to tell me when they're a yes to something. Right. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this this concept or this idea that some some people take a little while to warm up, yeah. and and sexual arousal sometimes isn't as spontaneous as we want it to be. And the older I get, the more I realize that I know I'm going to enjoy sex. I you're asking me if I want to have it right now, and the answer is is I'm kind of lukewarm about it, but I know that once we get going, I'm going to be over the moon. Yeah, and so this piece of sort of like informed consent takes into account the fact that. 
I'm a yes, but I'm not, I'm not a fuck yes. Yeah. And, and that's okay. It's okay not to always be a fuck yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. As long as there's room to say to someone, and this would be within probably the context of a more established dynamic where you know each other, where I'm not really feeling it in this moment, but I know that if we get started, I'm usually into it. So let's go for it. But then 10 or 15 minutes later, let's just check and make sure that's happening. Right. So that if this happens to be a day where trying it first doesn't lead to turn on, we can stop. Yeah. I love that. So, yeah. I love, I love the, the, f- the idea that there's there's space. I mean, obviously, consent can be removed at any time. But I love the idea that you can just continuously check in with your partner, which is something that I I strive to do, but don't always do. Yeah. Throughout the act of sex, because I mean, it it can last a long time, and it can it can be an emotional roller coaster, and there can be there's a lot there. There's a lot there, and so it, I, I love the idea of being able to to stop and take a break. I love taking breaks during yeah. sex and just like reevaluate where we're at. Even just a question like, how's this working for you? Is there anything that would make this even more fun? I, I think that's a very nice way to frame it. Is there anything that would make this more fun for you um, or more delicious for you? I, I think that's a very positive way of framing that. And can you just shed some light on sexual empowerment and what that really means because I, I hear people talking about you know empowered decisions and being empowered and i have a hard time kind of grasping like what that really means yeah i think if you ask five people you'll get eight answers okay okay good so that's then i want your answer <laughs> <laughs> my, my answer today well i think that sexual empowerment it requires having enough knowledge and information right? it's very difficult to make an empowered choice when information has been withheld from you so you have to know what your possibilities are. Um, you need to not only be free to choose them, but you also have to believe that you're free to choose them. Uh, and what I mean by that is that because of the way that many of us are trained, uh, we frequently don't believe we have as much choice as we actually do, or that we don't deserve to make a choice or or, or what have you. I think fundamentally empowerment is... I know that I deserve this. I know that I deserve to make this choice. And if you are not respectful of my choice, that says something about you, not me. And then as part of that, I can make this choice without fear of retribution or punishment. Um, so sexual empowerment is really tricky if your partner is going to go into a passive aggressive sulk because you said yes or no to something. Yeah. So how do you deal with partners like that? Uh, Change partners? Well, not necessarily. But I mean, this has actually been something that's come up with some of my clients. And, you know, I'll, I'll jump in in my role as coach and say, you know, look, every time this topic comes up, I watch you get shut down and disengage and you slide across the couch to be further away from your partner. What's up with that? What's going on for you? Right. So observing the pattern, you know, I notice that a lot of the time, if I say no to you, you get really upset and then you don't talk to me for two days. And that makes it really difficult for me to be honest with you. So what would you like? Would you like to have me not be honest with you or would you like to try to change this pattern? And this, by the way, is a really good time to find a therapist or a coach 
because it's really difficult to fix this from the inside. And it's very difficult to get support from the person who you're upset with. So having somebody who's neutral, who can give you some perspective, helps a lot. Yeah, I had a friend say that it sometimes can feel like being trapped in a box and the, the directions on how to get out of the box are written on the outside. On the box, yeah. You know, and so I, I love the idea of, of working with people that can help me work through some through issues. Yeah. Because I can't, I really, there's some things that I can do and there's some things that I just can't do alone. Well, and especially when we're talking about sexuality, because um, most people only talk about sex with their partners which means that there's a very limited perspective on how things work. Finding a practitioner who has talked with hundreds or thousands of people or who has read lots of different books, taken courses, right, they've got a wider perspective. You know, as an example, approximately 70% of cisgender women need some kind of clitoral stimulation in order to reliably orgasm. Most people don't know that and get really worked up about, well, if you can't come from intercourse, then there must be something wrong happening. It's your fault. It's my fault. There's something bad. You know, having some perspective from somebody who can say, you know, 70% of people, by definition, that's the norm. They need clitoral stimulation. That's just a thing. Yeah, I mean, I've read those books, and so I, I know that, and I feel that, you know, the blaming somebody for not being able to either give a vaginal orgasm or receive one is like very an unpopular opinion in certain circles but in in the reality is that in the mainstream it happens all the time people don't know that it happens all the time you know blaming somebody for how for not being able to orgasm in a particular way would be like blaming me for not being able to reach the top shelf of the cabinet without a step stool and you know it's going to make it a whole lot harder for, for that orgasm to happen. It's as true. soon as you start throwing blame in, in a sex situation, I mean, it's out the window. Yeah, blame and resentment will kill your sex life. All right, my little freaky deekies, is this the part of the show that you've been waiting for? The peace on prostate pleasure? You are one of two authors that wrote uh, The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure. What's the second? What's the subhead? Erotic Exploration for Men and Their Partners. Yeah. How does it feel to be, to be uh, one of the experts on the topic? It's not exactly where I thought my career was going to go, but it, I like it, you know, especially because my work as a sex educator and my work as a coach, it's really all about saying or speaking the things that aren't spoken. You know, what's not being said here? What's the thing that you really want that you don't know how to talk about? And anal play in general and men receiving anal play in particular, you know, those are topics that we're not supposed to talk about in this world. And so I really enjoy the fact that I talk about them all the time and and that just makes the world a happy place for me. Yeah. I mean, I love talking about stuff that most people don't talk about. Yeah. I, I'm often the person that will say the thing that, that people want to say, but don't say. 
prostate play is not uh, apparently not just for gay men. Right. How is the landscape changing in in the sense that or in the way where where straight men are like getting into receiving prostate pleasure? Well, I, I want to mention one thing first, which is that a lot of gay men I talk to don't necessarily know much about the prostate, um, and some of that is that anal play and prostate play it's two different things going on in the same way that clitoral play and g-spot play are two different things going on um i've talked with folks who really enjoy receiving intercourse but don't know anything about the g-spot and i've talked with plenty of uh gay and bisexual men uh, and men who have sex with men who love anal play but they don't know a thing about the prostate so um, there's this myth that the reason why gay men like anal play is because of the prostate, and that's just not true. It's one component it's one, of anal play. Yeah, it can be, but but it's not it's not the only reason. And in fact, I know far too many folks with vulvas, you know, cisgender women, transgender men, gender queer folks, you know, folks who don't have prostates, who really enjoy anal play too. Right. So it's not a gendered thing. But coming back to your question about uh, heterosexual guys and prostate play, you know, we, we have this idea that sex is supposed to be all about the penis, right? It's all about making the penis feel good. And when the guy comes, then that's the end of sex. And that's the only sexual part of his body. And a lot of the men I've talked to have said that exploring prostate play has given them just much more access to the possibilities of their erotic bodies. And so they can see how sex is not just about their cock, that you don't necessarily need an erection, that you can enjoy sexual stimulation on any part of the body. So, so that's one piece. Another piece is that for men who have never received any kind of penetrative sex, uh, sex happens outside your body, right? Like even if you're having the hottest intercourse of your life, it's still happening outside your body. It's not inside. When you start experimenting with receiving pleasure through penetration and exploring what it's like to have sexual stimulation happen inside your body, all of a sudden you become much more aware of things like how your mood or your physical state affect your arousal. You can understand things like being really turned on and really into your partner, but still needing lots of warm-up. Um, and so a lot of the men I talk to tell me that it's actually made them better lovers as givers because they now have this embodied sense of what it's like to receive. And interestingly, a lot of the women I've talked to uh, who have been on the giving side of prostate play have told me that now they understand why their boyfriends or husbands or partners or whoever, when they get excited, they start going faster and like slow down, slow down starts becoming repetitive. But I've heard from a lot of women who have said to me, wow, yeah, my boyfriend kept telling me to slow down, but I was so turned on that that was really difficult. Now I know why he does that. Um, so it's this interesting way of walking a mile in the other person's shoes that uh, just opens up all kinds of possibilities. No yeah. pun intended. Yeah. I, 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 it, it makes the sexual, what's available, 
more complex and more interesting. Yeah. Because it's not just about the cock and the balls. There's now this other organ that can be stimulated and everything that comes with stimulating that organ. Because it's not just slide it in and start massaging the prostate. Like like you said, there has to be some warm up. Yeah. And there's that's oftentimes the times that I've uh, experienced this sort of pleasure with with another partner. It's much more vulnerable and intimate. And it's not something that I'm willing to do with everybody. And, and what a great lesson because, you know, then if you're with a new partner and she says, yeah, I mean, I enjoy intercourse, but it's not something I really want to do at this point in our dynamic. We don't know each other that well yet. It's going to be a lot easier for you to to be cool with that because you know what that's like, right? Or maybe you're, maybe she's just stressed out and, you know, like that's not the thing that's going to feel good to her today. Um, it, this is why I genuinely believe the world is going to be a better place when more men take it up the ass. Yeah. Because we can talk about this stuff all day long, or you can have an embodied experience that changes everything. Yeah. Every woman that I've talked to about the possibility of pegging happening or of, of them penetrating me, they get like over the moon excited. Yeah. There are, you know, I've definitely talked with folks who, have some trepidation about it. You know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, when, when we wrote the book, um, we did a survey ultimately asking over 200 people, mostly men, but also partners of men about their experiences. And there were three concerns that came up over and over again. Is this going to hurt? Is this going to get messy? And does this mean I'm gay? And I've also heard this from women who have said, well, if my boyfriend likes this, doesn't that mean he's gay? Um, so I, I, I just want to acknowledge that because there are, you know, women also have fears and concerns potentially about this. So you've, you've been lucky that all of your partners have said, yeah, let's go for it. But, sure. but I just want to put that out there that not everybody will respond. It's not a guarantee. Well, those, and the answer to those questions can be yes. Yes, it can hurt. Yes, it can be messy. And yes, it can mean that you're gay. But for the most part, if it's done with some considerations in mind, those can also be no. Well, and and the, the thing is, right, so those first two questions about pain and hygiene, those are technical questions, how to do this safely. But who you want to have sex with, that's your sexual orientation. What things feel good to your body, that's about where your nerve endings are. Gay men are not born with magic prostate anal nerve endings that straight guys don't have. It just doesn't happen. And, and I've talked with plenty of gay men who don't like anal play at all. Interestingly, there was a study done a while back. They surveyed 2,000 gay men about their most recent sexual experience, you know, what they did. And uh, anal intercourse was reported 37% of the time. Now, I'm pretty confident that 99 plus percent of those guys have tried it at least once because there's a lot more conversation about anal sex in the gay community. But imagine what the world would be like if heterosexual couples were having intercourse 37% of the time that they had sex. Right? I can't. It's a very different world. Yeah, I can't. Right? So the idea that anal sex is what gay men do all the time is just not true. And it's actually sort of a projection of heterosexual patterns onto gay men. So now we can start dismantling the myth. And then we can start exactly heterosexual men can start feeling more comfortable at the idea of being penetrated and eventually actually feel the, the benefits. Yeah, well, and and the fact is, 
sec- from a sexological perspective, any sexual act that happens between two people of different genders is heterosexual sex. So a woman wearing a strap-on and pegging a guy is just as much heterosexual sex as him having intercourse with her because it's not about the act itself. It's about the genders of the people who do it. So yeah, lots of myths about all of these things. So so now now we know. Yeah. It's been demystified. Demystified. You're not gay if you like. Well, you might be, but you, you it's, probably... It's not going to change it. It's not going to change it. No. It's just not. It might help you come more into alignment with your fantasies, but those fantasies were already there. Maybe you were just disavowing them. So having known that, yeah. how can men learn to receive? Because it's not obvious. It's not obvious. I think the most important thing is learning to breathe and relax. When you hold your breath, your whole body tightens up including your pelvic floor. So learning to breathe and relax and long, slow exhalations actually relaxes the nervous system down. So that's one thing. A second thing is learning to enjoy the sensations even if you're not doing anything. So for example, learning to lie back and receive, you know, honestly learning to lie back and receive a blowjob as compared to taking a more initiatory active role, role. active role with it yeah i think learning to receive a lot of people and especially a lot of men have some anxiety around that so i think this is a good place to take it slowly you know for example if your partner is giving you a back rub notice when you feel like all right so now i should grab her and toss her on the bed and now it's my turn to be in charge like where does that urge come from if you are lying back and your partner is giving you a blowjob do you start noticing your attention is wandering and you're planning ahead for when it's your turn can you focus on the physical sensations of what is happening right now well that what what you just described i think can be attributed to men just as much as women i mean i know a, a whole slew of women who just have a hard time receiving especially oral sex because they feel like they're taking too long yeah and to just learn to to sit back and relax and enjoy the show and and that nothing has to happen concurrently in this in this situation it's that's hard to do well i was working once with a couple uh, a male female couple and she did not like to receive oral sex and it was because Oral sex had never made her orgasm. She had a very specific pattern that caused her to orgasm. And if it wasn't that, she could enjoy it, but it just didn't happen. And she had had a number of boyfriends over the years who got insistent that like, oh, my magic oral sex skills, you're going to come harder than you've ever come before. And that goal-oriented pressure turned her off to oral sex. And when her boyfriend said, you know, thanks for telling me about all of that. I actually just really like going down on you. As long as you're enjoying it, I don't care whether you're going to have an orgasm or not. I just want to know that you're having fun with it. And she said, oh, well, if you're not pressuring me to have an orgasm, then yeah, I do like this. And then they were able to engage in that way. So that goal-oriented approach makes it really difficult to receive. Receiving works most easily when you're not trying for any particular outcome. 
Except well, pleasure to feel good. Right. Pleasure based. Yeah. Ple- pleasure based play. Yeah. Other than goal oriented, which which is interesting because when we talk about prostate play, there 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 can be different types of orgasms. Mm-hmm. There can be the act of like milking the prostate and having a lot of like fluid come out. And that can be something that people really want to achieve, or they might want to achieve like a whole body orgasm that they've heard that they can have. And in my experience, every time that I've tried to play with my prostate, I've also wanted these goals and it gets in the way of just exploring new sensations. Yeah. Well, and you know, when it comes to things like whole body orgasms, it really is about relaxing into it and yeah the more you push for it the less likely it is to happen it's a very it's a very zen sort of thing right you can't achieve enlightenment if you're trying to achieve enlightenment um i will say though if you are interested in exploring full body orgasms montak chia's book the multi-orgasmic man he's the man right like it's it's not about prostate play specifically but about learning to run sexual energy you know, throughout your entire body. I think his book is the most uh, accessible and easy to read. It's a, it's mostly focused on male-female patterns, but he does have a chapter on male-male couples, which puts him a step beyond most people in that world in terms of what the what makes it into books. Yeah, and or you could just read that book from the perspective of just one solo male. Yeah. I mean, that's how I read it. There's a lot there. And and ultimately, when we're talking about sexual energy, it's less about genitals and more about how you can ride those waves. And it doesn't really matter as much what you have between your legs in terms of the practice. Well, and that's different than penis-based orgasms because we're we're taught that to just like if you want if you want an orgasm just hammer it out and you'll you'll eventually get one and i think from what i know and from what i've read that that's not the approach to take when it comes to to prostate pleasure well and and the difference is that ejaculation and orgasm are not the same thing even though we often use those words interchangeably and they often happen at the same time it's actually two different processes and my proof for this is you know, I'm going to, I'm willing to bet that everybody out there with a penis has had at least one experience in your life where you ejaculated maybe by yourself, maybe with a partner, but you didn't really have much of that orgasmic energy. It was more like scratching an itch or sneezing, right? Like, okay, took care of the urge. Let me wash my hands and go back to work or whatever it is. You can have an ejaculation without orgasm, and you can have an orgasm without ejaculation. It just takes a little bit more practice to figure out. Yeah. I mean, I've had those orgasms where I've not wanted to orgasm, and so I've tried to pull back, but then I ejaculated anyways, and the orgasm was like a one on the scale, and it was like the most disappointing thing yeah. ever, but it happened. Yeah. It happened, and it was it was like a disappointment, but I ejaculated, and then I'm in refractory period, and, and yeah. that's that for uh, for a period of time. Yeah, and I think that's also common when we're watching porn. And I'm not saying that porn is bad or evil. I'm not one of the folks who argues that, but I do observe that when 98% of your attention is on the computer screen or the TV or your phone, right, that you're not really being present in your body in the same way that if you're watching TV while eating dinner, you're not really tasting your food either. Yeah. When I decide to make, when I make a conscious decision to not look at pornography, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to masturbate. It means that I'm going to masturbate much less frequently. But when I do, it's when I'm actually turned on. 
or I, I make a, a decision to, to like spend time with myself and yeah. to go like, okay, this is where I'm just going to like give myself love. Yeah. And I think that with prostate play, it's not something that you, it, that you just kind of hammer out. I think it's something that you can, you spend more time and that you're more thoughtful. It takes a little more warm up. It takes more warm up. Yeah. Do you have a final parting thought for our listeners? Nobody is born knowing anything about sex any more than we are born knowing about food or music or exercise or cars. Um, and so if you want to have an amazing sex life, it's not that difficult to do, but you do need to learn how to do it, whether that is books, websites, working with a coach, working, you know, exploring things with your partner, just, just try stuff and see what works for you. Do the work. Do the work. It's, you know, it's the payoff is worth it. Charlie can be found on Facebook at Charlie Glickman and also on his website at Make Sex Easy. Com. He lives in Seattle, Washington. The Love Drive is produced by me, Sean Galanos, with the help from Guilford Street Studios. We are a small outfit, but we tremendously appreciate your support. The best thing you can do for me right now to help me out is to go to your podcast app and subscribe to the show. Every subscription means the world to me. So thank you so much. To find out more about me, the Love Drive, and to get detailed show notes about this episode, go to thelovedrive.com. Thank you for listening, and please stick around. I have some amazing guests coming your way.